Good afternoon. We're in the home stretch now. Just another 45 or 50 minutes and I'll be getting warmed up. I know everybody's been sitting patiently. This is the last in our really kind of mini-series of lessons today on the subject of truth, a topic that, Lord willing, will serve as the centerpiece and the theme for our meeting this week. So far today, we've examined the nature of the truth, and in doing so, we firmly established that there is such a thing as objective truth by considering the question, what is truth? We've uncovered some of the lies and the impediments to keep, um, that keep us from embracing the truth, why not the truth? We just considered some of our obligations and really our privilege to proclaim the truth and speak the truth. And for these next few minutes, we're going to examine the power of the truth. We're going to look at the power of the truth to produce and provide true freedom. Our lesson this afternoon gets its title from a statement, or really a declaration of independence, you might say, of our Lord in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. In that passage, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We'll return to this passage in John chapter 8 a little bit later, but it's the 8th chapter of the book of Luke that I actually would like to start this afternoon. In Luke chapter 8, verse 26, having just calmed a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples land on the shores of the country of the Gadarenes. Immediately upon disembarking the boat, Jesus is met by what I would have considered a rather startling and unsettling and threatening sight. There's a man who had been demon-possessed for some time standing before him and coming toward them. This man was naked. He was destitute. There was not only an obvious lack of shame and social graces and moral awareness, but a obvious lack of means to even meet the most basic of human needs. Apparently for some time he had been completely vulnerable, completely exposed to the natural elements and the harshness of his environment, a state that I'm sure had taken quite a toll on his body and being. This man was homeless. In verse 27 it says that instead of a house he took residence among the tombs, among the dead. Again, not only would this have been obviously an extremely bizarre um, behavior, but also one that would have caused people to find it very repulsive, making him a social outcast. He would have considered being constantly ceremonially unclean by the Jews. And not only that, but it would have left him extremely um, disgusted and even in dangerous circumstances, exposing him to potentially deadly diseases. In Mark's account of the same event, we're told that previous attempts to bind and subdue this man with chains and shackles, presumably for his own protection, had proven to be useless and ineffective. He had wrenched the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. In addition to his wild and savage appearance and imposing and intimidating strength, Mark chapter 5, verse 5 says that his cries of torment could be heard day and night among the tombs, on the mountain. And as he inflicted additional pain and punishment upon himself, always cutting himself with stones. I don't know about you, but the thought of encountering this man, the thought of lying in my bed at night with an earshot of this man's cries 
of tortured and primal screams is enough to send chills down my spine. Although I've often been curious, we're not told how this man came to be possessed by these many demons who refer to themselves as legion here. But one thing is abundantly clear. The result was that this man was a prisoner in his own body. He was a prisoner in his own body. He was isolated. He was outcast from friends and family. He was dwelling among the dead. He was unable to be tamed or restrained by the strength and efforts of man. He was in constant turmoil and agony, unable to break free of the cycle of self-destruction. On the surface, it may seem rather difficult for us to relate to the plight and condition of this man. Everyone within my purview this afternoon appears to be well-clothed, well-integrated members of society, and what I would classify as relatively sound mind. To my knowledge, and based upon my understanding of scriptures, this type of demon possession that afflicted this man does not occur today, and yet I wonder just how different and unrelatable this man's condition really is and really was to what we all experience when we decide to surrender to sin. When we allow that enticement to become entrapment, giving in to our own desires, when we concede and consent to our fleshly lusts and consummate an unholy union, when, we, when, when desire conceives and brings forth sin, and sin, when it's all grown up, brings forth death, as James describes in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, the life cycle of sin. When, like Eve, we realize far too late that what had been whispering in our ear all along was no more than a seducing spirit peddling the doctrine of demons, and what we have been sold is a lie, and it's a deadly lie. When the oasis of pleasure that appeared to promise the very relief and the very satisfaction, the very nourishment that our flesh longed for, that it thirsted for, that it clamored for, evaporates before our eyes upon arrival, and that mirage, that illusion, gives way to the cruel reality that it is nothing more than a desolate and barren wasteland, only able to deliver uncertain death. When that sin and its infancy seems so innocent and manageable, suddenly turns into a domineering monster, a savage killer. When the exhilarating feelings of novelty and newfound freedom quickly are replaced with the stale and defeated expectation and resignation of habit and addiction. When our stimulant of choice, drugs, alcohol, sex, money, you name it, offer less and less enjoyment with more and more indulgence until you no longer enjoy it at all, but you couldn't imagine life without it. One day you look up and realize that you couldn't stop inflicting harm on yourself if you wanted to, and the worst part about it is, deep down inside, you know you really don't want to stop. Just like our original ancestors after their transgression in the garden, this, and this poor man here in Luke chapter 8, we find ourselves naked and ashamed, and exposed, and vulnerable, and dwelling among the dead. The relationships that we once cherished and were strengthened by are now distorted, they're destroyed, collateral damage of the fallout. We find ourselves estranged and alienated from God, our Creator, who, who is himself light and love and light. We are secluded and separated from his people. We isolate 
and hide in fear, withdrawing deeper and deeper into darkness, desperately hoping that the light of the truth doesn't expose who and what we really are. We sabotage and ruin any good and wholesome relationship we've ever known because the only love that we can truly muster is a cheap and pathetic imitation centered solely on ourselves and corrupt man. We become resentful, we become bitter, we become angry and so twisted and distorted of soul and mind that we even begin to blame God for all of our problems, although he cannot be tempted and does not tempt any man. But most of all, deep down, if we're really honest, we hate ourselves. We hate ourselves for what we've become. We hate ourselves for the fact that it's all our fault, brought on by our own desires. We hate the fact that we are powerless to do anything about it. When the thrill is gone, when the shine is worn off, we are left to face the harsh reality that what was promised to bring liberty, as we read in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19, has in fact brought on a bondage and oppression more debilitating than anything we could have ever imagined. We have become prisoners in and of our own corrupt minds and bodies, legally and functionally condemned, abandoned, dilapidated, not fit for use, and sentenced and scheduled for destruction. If it sounds as though I speak from experience, it's because I do. And it would be a pompous and arrogant and delusional lie to pretend otherwise. But far more important than my own personal experience and testimony is the fact that this is exactly how God's word presents our relationship with sin. What I just described is not sensational or dramatic hyperbole. It is scriptural reality. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus goes on to say, Most assuredly, most certainly, this is a certainty, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 states that Scripture has confined, it's locked up, it's imprisoned all under sin. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, spends the first seven chapters of the book of Romans constructing a thorough and methodical and airtight case that none are exempt from this bondage. From the pagans who suppress the truth and unrighteousness in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, who exchange the truth of God for a lie, who worship and serve the creature, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, who are given over and delivered up to a debased and reprobate mind, to even the Jews to whom the law was given, who knew his will, they approved the things that were excellent. Romans chapter 2, verse 18, they were confident that they were guides to the blind, lights to those in darkness. They made their boast in the law and yet they dishonored God by breaking that same law. All have previously been charged, both Jew and Greek, that they are all under sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. That is, they are under the authority. They are under the subjection to sin. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, it makes it clear that death spread to all men, and death reigned over all men because all sinned. Judgment and condemnation came to all men, chapter 5, verse 18. Paul goes on in the seventh chapter to describe his own experience with the flesh and the natural state in the following terms, where he says in Romans chapter 7, 
verses 13 through 15, that he was sold under sin. Verse 14, he was not even really in fully in control or even fully understanding what he was doing. He was restrained from doing what he willed. He was compelled to perform what he resented and what he hated. These are terms of, that describe bondage and imprisonment. And finally, in Romans chapter 7, verse 21, these are the observations of a frustrated man who's reached an exasperation in what he's observed in himself when he says, I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law of my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity through the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? From what I read here, it seems to me that at least on a very fundamental level, Paul could relate and empathize with that cruel bondage and slavery that afflicted that demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 8. And just like with that demon-possessed man, it took an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ for Paul to be restored to his right mind, to be truly set free. And the same is true for each person sitting in this room today. Jesus Christ came into the world the Word became flesh and dwelt among us for this very purpose and with this very mission to bring grace and truth and ultimately true freedom. This is what was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand and what Christ himself confirms at the onset of his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, when he takes the book of Isaiah and reads the following passage, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He goes on to state in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's why he was here. That's why he was here. This is the backdrop this is the context of Jesus' statement that we read earlier in John chapter 8 and verse 32. That's why he was standing there in front of those, that group of people. When he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's interesting to me, juxtaposed to the naked and deranged and demon-possessed man that dwelt among the tombs in Luke chapter 8, the setting and the audience of John chapter 8 couldn't appear more different, at least on the surface. Jesus is standing there teaching in the temple treasury. He was addressing a group of people who would undoubtedly have considered themselves to be very intelligent, to be very well regarded. They were likely people of means, and they were well-respected, well-connected, religious elites of the day. They call themselves, they, they hang their hat on the fact that they're descendants of Abraham, and they're adamant that they had never been in bondage to anyone. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Jesus could have gone through a list of things that made the point that that was a delusional statement in and of itself. They were standing in bondage to the Roman Empire at the time. They had been in bondage to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. But he didn't go there. He doesn't go there. He goes right to the heart of the matter. He who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
Jesus, the truth, saw right through the fake veneer to the reality of their core condition. And that's what the truth does. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Cuts to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, even to be able to uh, determine the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus saw a group of people as he stood there that were wretched. They were oppressed. They were miserable. They were helpless prisoner, slaves in desperate need of the only thing that could really set them free, and that was the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus told them, even though they wanted to kill him for it. That's what he told them. The truth is and always will be the only way to true freedom. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There's a lot bound up in Christ's simple yet profound statement here in John chapter 8, verse 32, certainly far more than we could ever hope to fully exhaust or unpack in our remaining time this afternoon. But nonetheless, let's just spend a few minutes highlighting some of the wonderful implications of this promise. How does the truth set us free from such a hopeless and helpless situation? How is that possible? How is that achieved? To what end? And what does that mean? And what does it not mean? Let's start with what that statement does not mean. While it's true that this is a wonderful and sure promise, one that is backed by great power and awesome authority, enabled and aided from help from high and heavenly places, it is also important to have a realistic and scriptural expectation for what that freedom entails, what it looks like, and what it does not. Contrary to what may be taught today, what may be assumed, what may, we may even desire at times, this does not mean that we have a freedom from all earthly and temporal consequences for our sin and our poor decisions, past, present, or future. It does not mean that we are free from pain and suffering. It does not mean that we are free from responsibility or subjection to any and all authority to do as we please. It does not mean that we are free from future bombardment of desires and temptations. And it does not mean that we are free from future failure even potentially returning to bondage if we continue in sin. Just as the death that comes from sin is both immediately, is, is both immediate, instantly uh, severing our relationship with God, but it is also time-released, a slow and steady decay of mind, body, and soul. Dying, you shall die. The liberty that the truth brings becomes both our instant reality upon accepting it. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are free from condemnation, as well as our earnest and hopeful expectation of what we shall be. The completion, the fruition, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, when this mortal puts on immortality, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, when the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 21. In the meantime, our task and our obligation and our privilege is to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, by abiding in his word and knowing the truth. Psalm 119, 105 likens God's word to a lamp unto our feet. It's something that enlightens our way. It gives us freedom to navigate um, our surroundings safely and confidently. And this is a wonderful and precious blessing indeed. But Scripture is clear that this knowledge of truth goes far beyond merely acquiring accurate and reliable facts or dogma, being hearers of the word only. The freedom that Christ offers is more than the freedom from ignorance. The freedom that Christ offers is true freedom 
it is, goes beyond merely seeing and thinking clearly. As we saw plainly in Romans chapter 7, our slavery to sin is not merely a matter of not knowing or not concurring with what is right. It is a matter of our inability to perform and execute it perfectly. It is a matter of willpower and obedience and something the natural man does not possess the ability to do. Knowing the truth involves entering into an intimate relationship with it, i.e. with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first six verses of Romans chapter 7 tell us that, what we have, that we have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that which used to have dominion over us, that which we were held by, that through which sin took advantage and stimulated and aroused our sinful passions to the intent that we may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Knowing the truth involves being joined to him, joined with him and united with Jesus Christ, entering into an intimate and sacred and covenant relationship with him. Through baptism, we are buried with him. We're told that we are united in the likeness of his death so that we can also be united in his resurrection, walking in newness of life, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. We are new creatures. The old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been set free from sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We were dead to God, separate from God, and now we are dead to sin, meaning we are separated and removed from it. We are uncommitted and unresponsive to its seductive advances and demands. Sin shall not have dominion over us, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Rather, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord and slaves to righteousness. We're free to pursue life and light and love. Through him, we have taken on a new identity, a new family name, a new family position, and a new nature. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, it says, His divine power has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are no longer mastered and driven by things that are inherently weak and worthless and powerless and passing away, but we are led by the very Spirit of God, the awesome and everlasting Spirit of truth, the helper, the comforter that Christ promised he would send to his disciples in John chapter 14 and chapter 16. It was to our advantage that Christ would leave, ascending to the right hand of Father, leading captivity captive in the process, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, having disarmed principalities and powers, triumphing over them, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, having destroyed him who had the power of death, releasing those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. And now... He is appointed to serve and to aid and to help as a faithful and merciful and sympathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. And, he, and, and that he would send the spirit of truth, the, the spirit that rules us, that teaches us, that governs us, that leads us, that enables us, that protects us, that indwells us, that strengthens us, by which we're able to put to death the deeds of the body, he helps in our weaknesses in ways that we can't even understand, making intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. 
and he makes us his. He makes us children of God. He is our seal, and he is our guarantee of our inheritance as God's children. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 tells us that we did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And as Jesus says there in John chapter 8, verse 35 and 36, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son, son's different, son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 says, We have been qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. This, brethren, is true freedom. And it is only found through the truth. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Such a simple statement, yet so profound, and one I can assure you that we just began to scratch the surface of this afternoon. It's no wonder that Paul writes what he does in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, that even the blessed um, and precious descriptions of our liberty found therein are wholly inadequate and insufficient terms to describe our spiritual reality. I get the impression that he's, what he's saying there is it's like attempting to describe the beauty and glories of heaven in terms that we can really grasp and understand. We're just so vastly limited by the weakness of our flesh. That's what Paul's saying here about these unspeakable blessings and realities of those who have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. As a result, I don't think it's any coincidence or accident that Paul freely and frequently refers to himself as a bondservant of Christ in many of his letters. This was a title that he wore as a badge of honor. It's one that he sought diligently and cherished, and we should too. Because it describes someone that has been set free from sin and death and guilt and condemnation and shame and fear and uncertainty and self-righteousness and selfishness. And they have been set free to be truly righteous before God in Jesus Christ, members of God's kingdom and family, and set free to serve one another and to serve the Lord, a restored purpose and function. For those of us who have accepted and received and obeyed the truth, the exhortation is very simple today. Stand fast in the freedom for which Christ has made you free. Don't turn back like the children of Israel did in their hearts to Egypt when things got hard, when the circumstances began to look dire. We may be tempted, as Shane alluded to, to look around us today at a world full of lies and of darkness and to become fearful and to become discouraged. We may begin to wonder if there's really any hope at all, any use to, to fight, any, any hope to successfully navigate all of what we hear and see around us, any hope to resist the powerful forces that have set themselves against us. Is the truth really strong enough? Is it really potent enough to set us free and to keep us free from the onslaught of deception, from the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, the spiritual host of wickedness at heavenly places that array themselves in battle against us? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. 
An experienced John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, these comforting words when he says, You are of God, little children. You have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 2 Peter chapter 2, after reminding his readers that there were false prophets among the people of past times, even as there will be false prophets among them, Peter goes on in that same chapter to provide several stark and sobering warnings and examples of God's past judgment on those who would oppress the righteous. He mentions Noah, he mentions Lot. And after providing the examples, he says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver. The Lord knows how to deliver. He will deliver. We need to make sure that we're aligned with and abiding in his truth. If you're here today and have never accepted the gospel, if you've never acted on the truth and faithful obedience, then I am begging you, please, please, consider your present condition and give it more than a cursory and passing evaluation. Don't make the same mistakes that the Pharisees did in John chapter 8, who were so fixated, who were so confident in their perceived power and their self-righteousness and their position in this world, and they could not see that they were spiritually blind and delusional, unable to see themselves for what they truly were, slaves of sin, sons of the devil, and destined for death and eternal destruction. If you find that this describes your current spiritual condition, don't put it off. And don't hesitate. If you find yourself helpless and hopeless and shackled by sin, paralyzed by shame and fear, separated from the life of God and condemned with death, well, you're in, you're in company. We've all been there. That was all us one time. But please know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loves you and that who came to this earth to suffer and die for you, invites you now to come and be made free. If you're ready to accept the truth of the gospel, to repent of your sins, to confess him, and to be baptized for the mission of your sins, receiving the Holy Spirit and adoption into God's family, please come forward and make that known as we stand and sing.